Our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 28. Jesus and John the Baptist. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me again? Father, we are so grateful for your word. Uh, We're thankful for the the real picture of of real people that we get in your word. Father, we pray that as we we think about how you, your son, interacted with John the Baptist in this situation, in this circumstance, that you would open our eyes to the the caring and loving God that you are. We thank you again in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I'm not sure if you've noticed it or not. I'm I'm pretty sure you've noticed. Uh, But words can mean different things to different people. You notice that? Uh, like, like the word maybe, it, it means something very different to me than it does to my kids, usually. Uh, if they ask, can we have someone come and spend the night this weekend, and I say maybe, they hear, absolutely. Uh, unless the earth stops spinning on its axis, we can have someone over. What I mean when I say maybe is, there's about as much chance of that happening as there is of a snowman surviving in Indiana summer. It means different things to different people. Uh, The word fine is like that too. You know, if my wife asks me how she looks in the morning and I say fine, what I mean is everything is arranged in a very pleasing manner. Now get in the car. Uh, What she hears is I'm passable, but just barely. Uh, You know, it means something different, and the fact that words mean something different can create all kinds of communication hiccups, which can be amusing, frustrating, or maybe downright problem-creating. What about when words mean something different in the communication of the gospel? What if we say, God loves you, and has a wonderful plan for your life. Many of you recognize those words as the first words of the four spiritual laws, a gospel track that has been used to present the gospel to millions of people across the globe. On one hand, I love that statement. 
There's so much in it that I want to affirm that is just biblical and right and encouraging. Yes, God loves us. God loves us so much, he gave his son for us. God loves us so much that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's true. And God does have a wonderful plan for our life. You can go to Jeremiah and you can see that. You can go to the book of Romans where God says through the apostle Paul, everything is working together for the good of my people, of those who love me and have been called according to my purposes. So on the one hand, I love that statement. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But on the other hand, it makes me cringe just a little bit. Because I, I wonder what people hear when we say wonderful. Because that's a word that can have very different meanings for people. I think what people often hear is God loves you and he has a plan for your success for your happiness. Or, or God loves you and has a life planned for you full of fun and excitement, full of your dreams coming true. And if that's what people hear, they won't be prepared when trials come, when tragedy comes, when the diagnosis is cancer when the job doesn't come through, when they face bitter disappointments, or like John the Baptist did, persecution. I, I wonder how John the Baptist would have squared that statement, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, with his experience. I, I think he believed God loved him. I think he believed that God had a wonderful, wonderful plan, not just for him, but for everything. But how he understood that didn't, well, didn't line up with what he was experiencing. His understanding of wonderful was misshaped. And it led to some serious doubts. That's what this story is about, I think. Why doubts? I mean, you don't typically associate John the Baptist with doubts. Thomas, yeah, I mean, Thomas is doubting Thomas. But John the Baptist seems so full of, of courage and resolve. What's led him to this point where now he's, he's doubting? Certainly wasn't true of John's early ministry. Early on, you know, John is, is out in the wilderness. And as Jesus said, you know, people weren't going out to see John because he was dressed finely. He, he was dressed in camel hair and had a leather belt. And you, you kind of picture him with, you know, this big gnarly beard with a couple birds living in it. And, you know, I always picture him covered in bee stings because it said he ate locust and wild honey. You know, he's just reaching into those honeycombs and he's getting stung. And I mean, he's just, he is an old school prophet who had an amazing privilege. He got to see the dawn of this new age. He got to literally point with his finger and say, there he is. There's the one we've been waiting for. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had been preaching and saying, I'm baptizing you with water, but one is coming after me soon who's gonna baptize with the Spirit. 
I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And he's coming and he, he has a winnowing fork. He, he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff and burn up the chaff. He's got an axe and he's laying the axe at the root of this wicked generation. John preached him a message of, of repentance and also of coming judgment. And he looked at Jesus and said, there he is, there's the one who brings the kingdom of God. When John's disciples started to leave and, and go follow Jesus, he said, that's great. He must increase. I must decrease. But now John's situation has changed. Uh, by the time we read Luke chapter 7, John isn't out in the wilderness preaching anymore. He's in prison. John had been very bold and had preached against and called Herod into account, King Herod, because King Herod had taken his brother Philip's wife to be his own wife. Herodias was her name. And John had called him to account for that and infuriated Herod and Herodias. And so Herod had had him arrested and put in prison and was just basically waiting for an opportunity to put John to death. He wanted to put him to death, but he was afraid of the people because John was wildly popular among the people. So John is sitting in, in prison knowing that Herod wants him dead, knowing that Herod's going to take the first opportunity he gets to put him to death. And, and he's now wondering, Jesus, when is this going to happen but when's this kingdom that I announced that you bring, when's this going to happen? When are you going to start chopping that wicked root down? When are you going to establish the kingdom? Let's get this show on the road, and can you do it quick? <laughs> he begins to doubt. Maybe I was wrong. His dark situation begins to crowd in upon him and, and kind of overwhelm his, his faith. And he begins to doubt. I would call it a reasonable doubt. So John sends messengers to Jesus. Obviously he can't go himself, he's in prison. And he sends messengers and he says, go to Jesus and ask, are you the one? Or, or is there one that we should be waiting for? One that's coming after you? So John's disciples go and they ask Jesus. They say, John sent us. He wants to know, are you the one to come or should we expect another? And I love the way Luke tells the story. It's almost as if Jesus just kind of holds up with his finger and says, just wait a minute. Let me heal a few people. And he, he heals some blind people and he heals some deaf people and some lame people and it says raises you know, some people from the dead. And then he turns his attention back to John's disciples and says, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear and the dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And he says, go back and, and tell John what you just saw me do. Interesting, as Jesus is telling them to go and report this, he's actually taking a few passages from Isaiah and stitching them together. 
and saying, go tell him this. What I love about it, though, is in each of those passages, Isaiah talks about freeing the captive, setting prisoners free. Jesus leaves that part out of those quotes, not wanting John to get any false hope, I think, that he was going to be freed from prison, but wanting him to know that, yes, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, I am the king who's coming and bringing his kingdom. You were right, don't doubt. After Jesus tells that to John's disciples, he sends them back with the report. And then he turns to the crowd, and he starts talking about John the Baptist and what he was. He he was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. Uh, Among those who have been born of a woman, which, that's everybody, He says, there's been no one greater. You know, I don't think John ever heard those words. His disciples had already left with the report, and we know shortly after this, John's beheaded. Herod's wife, Herodias, wishes, it's a birthday wish, that John's head would be presented on a platter, and Herod accommodates that wish. So I don't think John ever heard Jesus' words about what a great man John was. But can you imagine that, that, that scene in heaven when an angel tells John the Baptist, you need to hear what, John, what Jesus said about you. He said, you're the greatest man that has ever lived. Uh, that's just a, a cool image. But John had his doubts He had to send these messengers to Jesus to to confirm his faith. I I love this story because it's it's such a human story. As so many of the stories are in the Bible, the heroes of the Bible are presented with, with all their frailties. And here John the Baptist, this great prophet, is. But how does it how does it connect with us? You know, as I I thought on this story. I think there's at least three things uh, that we can, that we ought to take away from it. Uh, The first is that I think we need to learn we ought to be okay with doubts. Uh, We ought to be okay with doubts, our own doubts and the doubts of others. Uh, Jesus seems to be okay with John's doubts, doesn't he? Uh, He doesn't chastise Don, John, Who's Don? Um, He doesn't chastise John. He he doesn't rebuke John. He just answers his questions. He doesn't look down upon John the Baptist because of his doubts. He just says, remember, this is who I am. This is what I do. He was okay with John's doubts. And I think we have to be okay with our doubts too. I grew up in a, in a context that was not okay with doubt. Not okay, okay with questions, not okay with, with worries about your faith. We had such a strong and developed doctrine of assurance that if you didn't know beyond any shadow of a doubt, well, then you probably weren't a real Christian. And so that didn't really alleviate your doubts. It just made you push those doubts down and not be honest with doubts. But I don't think that's biblical. 
Jesus isn't scared of our doubts. There's a really helpful book by Alistair McGrath called Doubting, and I would highly recommend it. He makes a very helpful distinction between three things, doubt, skepticism, and unbelief. And he says doubt is different than both skepticism and unbelief. Skepticism is a systematic, determined doubt. I will doubt everything unless it can be proved with absolute certainty. That's skepticism. Uh, Unbelief is a, a matter of the will. I choose, I determine not to believe. Doubt is different. Doubt is saying, I believe, but it's weak. I believe, but I I have questions. I I have concerns. I don't know how to make sense of this. And I think doubt is a permanent part, to one degree or another, of the Christian life. Because, well, we are and always will be humans. And part of being human is that we're creatures, not creator. And we're finite and frail. And our intellects can't reason all the way to certainty all the time. So doubts are a part of our life, a a part of our Christian life even. Alistair McGrath calls them Christian growing pains. That's okay. We need to be okay with our doubts, but not paralyzed by our doubts. Do you remember when you were maybe dating, or maybe you're still dating, and there's that that interest, but that doubt. You see someone across the room, and you think, I'd like to get to know them. But there's this doubt. Will they reciprocate? Will they want to get to know me? If I ask them out, will they say yes? If I start to like them or even love them, will they like or love me back? And as you start growing in your dating relationship, you doubt, is this the right one? Maybe, maybe not. At any stage, you could be absolutely paralyzed by those doubts and refuse to move forward. Or you could step out and take risks. You could venture out in faith saying, I don't know, but I'll ask anyway. We can't be paralyzed by our doubts. They're a part of our Christian life, but we need to step out in faith anyway. We need to say, I don't have absolute certainty in every aspect of my faith, but I believe. We need to be okay with doubts. I think that emerges from this story. Jesus was okay with doubt. He didn't get offended by John's doubt. But I think we also see that we need to be quick to go to Jesus. That's what John did, and he did the right thing. He didn't just sit in his cell and and try to reason himself through his doubts. He went through his messengers to Jesus and said, Jesus, remind me, who are you? Are you the one, or is there still one to come? You know, 
John could have just been overwhelmed with his situation. He could have kept his eyes and his mind focused on the prison walls and the bars and the impending doom. But he didn't. He, he lifted his gaze beyond that and went to Jesus. You know, it's easy for us to sometimes get consumed with our life situation, with the discouragement or the trial or the depression or, or the financial struggle. And our eyes just get, we get myopic and we only focus on the situation. And doubts fester in that environment. We need to go to Jesus, lift our eyes beyond the situation, beyond the circumstances, and look again to Jesus. I know in my life, I, I, I do that logically, and I do it relationally. Logically, when I'm being buffeted by, by doubts, and it happens, I, I start with Jesus. I, I have a doubt here, but what do I know about Jesus? What do I know about who he is? Well, I know the tomb was empty. I, I know he was raised from the dead. I believe that. I, I know he is who he said he was. I believe that. And from that firm place, I, I can withstand the storms of doubt that come. I can withstand the circumstances. They gain pers- I gain perspective on them. They don't swallow me. So logically, I, I go back to that firm place where I, I know who Jesus is. And then I deal with my doubts from there. But I do it re- relationally, too. Yeah, have you heard that, that statement, uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder? I don't believe it. <laughs> I've never really experienced that to be true. I, I like being with my wife, and I don't want to be away from her so that my heart will grow fonder. That doesn't make sense to me. In fact, when we were fresh out of, uh, of college, I moved to Missouri and she moved to Pennsylvania and we were apart for months. We dated for two years in, in college and I would say there was never much of a doubt at all that I wanted to spend my life with Lynn and I don't think there was any doubt in her mind, maybe, uh, that she wanted you know, to spend her life uh, with me. But those, that months or those months uh, of separation provided soil for doubt to grow. You know, am I too young to get married? Yeah, do I want to get married? Is this the right thing to do? And for her, I think it was, is he ever going to ask the question? Uh, you know, should I just ca- cut bait here and walk away? You know, what's wrong? Is this going to work? There was doubts. But then when we would, I'd fly to Pennsylvania or she'd fly to Missouri, and we were together, uh, the doubts dissipated. You know, sometimes we allow doubts to keep us from going to Jesus. And that's backwards. I think when we're being assaulted by doubts, that's the exact time where we need to go to Jesus. Go to him in prayer. Go to him in his word. And don't neglect going to him and being with him as he's with his people. There is a very special way in which we find Jesus among the gathered people of God that we can't find him alone in our prayer closets. 
That's why the author of Hebrews says, don't give up meeting together, especially as the day of trial approaches. As trials approach, you're going to be slammed with doubt and discouragement. Your faith is going to be tested, so gather together all the more, because I'm especially present with you as you gather together in faith. And your faith is going to need all the encouragement it can get. So be okay with doubts, both your doubts and the doubts of others, and in the midst of doubts, be quick to go to Jesus. The third thing I think this story reminds me of is that we need to be honest uh, about the Christian life and about how hard it can be so that we don't set people up for doubts. John began to doubt because his expectation of what Jesus was going to do didn't line up with what Jesus was doing. I think sometimes we create that situation for people unintentionally. We give them unbiblical unrealistic expectations of what the Christian life is going to look like. And then when it doesn't look like that, we've created a soil for doubt to grow in. We do it with good intentions, I think. We think we'll make Jesus look good by, by telling people how good our lives are now that we've followed Jesus. Or we minimize the struggles and the difficulty of following Jesus. I mean, there's the, the radical version of this, right? The, the health and wealth prosperity kind of stuff. You know, if you follow Jesus, you'll get the BMW, and your crops will grow, and your pigs will never die, and, you know, whatever's important to you, it's going to happen. But there's softer versions of that that I think we're all maybe guilty of. just been so good. I'm so happy. And we feel like we can't be honest about our doubts. Can't be honest about our struggles because we don't want people to project those things onto Jesus. But we've set them up for doubt when we present Jesus in the Christian life that way. Because if we've said it's all about happiness and it's all good and and nothing ever goes wrong and I have no doubts and you know the sun shines every day and then the clouds roll in and the diagnosis or the disappointment or the discouragement or the depression and they think well this isn't what it's supposed to be like. Maybe Jesus isn't always cracked up to be. Or, Or maybe my faith isn't genuine. Be careful how we sell Jesus. I think, again, we do it with good intentions. We want to make him look good. But that's not the way to do it. Imagine you're out shopping for a used car. And the used car salesman says, here's the car. If you buy it, I'll throw in free car washes for a year and free oil changes for a year. And here's some movie tickets. And do you want a dinner out? Now, we're suckers for good deals, so we might buy the car. 
but it's not because the car is this gem. It's because of all the stuff that's being thrown in. And sometimes I think that's how we try to present Jesus. Here, take Jesus, and you'll get all this stuff with it. Happiness and wealth and good-looking kids and whatever. But that doesn't make Jesus look like the priceless treasure that's worth having no matter what. You know, the, the televangelist who, who flies around the country in his private jet and has the million-dollar smile and the $200 haircut, when he tells me about how good Jesus is, doesn't mean that much to me. Uh, are you excited about Jesus or all that Jesus has given you as you live off the lucre of your ministry? But seeing, hearing, uh, my dad over Skype tell my boys as he's in the hospital room with a port in his neck awaiting another surgery. Hearing him tell my boys how good Jesus is and how good God has been to him, well, that's something totally different. I, I know he's not excited about Jesus because God's given him all this success, and certainly not all this wealth, and frankly, not even health. He's commending Jesus because he's found him to be that which is of greatest value. He, he wouldn't surrender his grip on Jesus for anything because he's found him to be the best thing in this life or any life. Uh, my parents were just growing up, frankly, they, they were brutally honest uh, about the Christian life and about how hard it was and about how good Jesus was in the midst of it. And I'm thankful for that. Uh, they didn't set me up to doubt with unbiblical expectations. They said, here's the Christian life. The path is narrow. It's rocky. It's hard. You'll fall You'll get hurt, but it's worth it, because Jesus is worth it. Well, my dad, he certainly had his doubts, and he was honest about those too, but he was unwavering in his understanding of who Jesus is and his worth. I, I love this story, because I, I just see me in it, doubts. When life doesn't go my way, doubts. But going back to Jesus and realizing, you know what? Jesus isn't afraid of my doubts. Jesus isn't offended by my doubts. Jesus says, okay, Dan, remember who I am. Remember what I've done. There's your bedrock now we can deal with your doubts. I pray that that's what you find in the story. A, a Jesus who isn't afraid of doubts and says, in the midst of them, here's who I am. Let's start there. Would you pray with me? 
Father, I am thankful again for the, the realness of your word. I'm thankful that you were just honest with us about what this life is going to hold, but also honest about what the next holds. Father, I thank you that we can say about all the, the momentary struggles that we go through that they are light compared to the eternal weight of glory, compared to the eternal joy of being with you and your son, Jesus, forever and ever. Father, we long for the day when the doubts are, well, they're, they're gone and faith becomes sight. Will you keep us strong until then? In Jesus' precious name, amen. May we please stand as we respond in worship.